Spoiler alert, it's Geek Top 5! You did that last week. Well, yeah, I figured that's like our new slogan. Now. Okay. It's just easier. Alright, alright. Yay! I'm Jesse. I hope you keep all that in. And I'm Graham! We absolutely will. <laughs> <laughs> and these are the five coolest things that are happening in the world of geekdom over the last couple of weeks. Number five, awesome trailer roundup. Yeah, trailer palooza. This is going to be kind of a lightning round. Let's hit it right at the top. Uh, first, for Ant Man and the Wasp, which I guess I'm going to steal your line. Way better trailer than had any right to be. I feel like we shouldn't be as surprised as we are because everyone was surprised by how good the first one was, the first Ant Man movie was. So we should have been primed that this would at least be a good trailer. But. Nobody remembers the first Ant-Man movie, right? Which, like, it was good. It is was a shame. That is a crying shame. Yes, this is a good movie. It's a, it's a lot of fun. It's very funny. I very much enjoy the visual effect. They, they, the premise does not get old. They find all kinds of fun things to do with it. When you think of the Avengers, nobody thinks of Ant-Man. Even though, in the comics anyway, he's a founding member. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not even the credit. same guy. No, well, he's, he's, he's the old it. guy. Yeah. yeah, fair enough. Anyway, so, what do we see in this new trailer? We see the Wasp, Janet Van Dyne, who is the cooler Ant-Man, essentially. She's, she's Ant-Man, but she also can fly and shoot stuff. Yeah. But it's more than that. It's... I mean, for one thing, it looks like an interesting premise for the movie. It's post-Civil War, so he's a bad guy, and we get the impression that they're on the run, Mm -hmm. which is always fun, run from the law. It's kind of a trope, but all for it. Um, But also just the demonstration of, like, the development of her character. We all knew all throughout Ant-Man that she was going to be the Wasp, but it was kind of frustrating because she's super competent and he was sort of the goofball. Which, again, a bit of a trope these days. The the super competent woman and the idiot man. Yeah, well, story of my life. Um, story of my marriage. <laughs> but uh, but now we get to see the Wasp in her full thing. Very brief glimpse of the villain. Who I didn't actually recognize, but... I believe it's Ghost, who is uh, sort of like a techno-ghost. He's um, sort of a minor villain in all of Marvel history. He was a Thunderbolt for a while. Uh, he pops up here and there. I I would be shocked if he's the main villain, but, you know, we'll see. Yeah, it doesn't seem like the villain is the focus of it anyway. The yeah. focus of it seems to be the relationship between these two and, like, you know, how he deals with her being, like, such so much the better hero. And so much faster. Yeah, and her kind of being resentful of him for being an Avenger. Yeah. So, looks like it just, and it's fun. It's a fun, exciting trailer. It makes me want to see the movie. Little product placement heavy, but that's okay. But again, product placement in that fun sort of way that uh, the Thomas the Tank Engine stuff was in the first one. Yeah, like it, 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 it's, mm, it is put there to sell things, but it's so contextually appropriate for that kind of humor, right? That it's okay. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and I think we get uh, brief glimpses of Lawrence Fishburne. I don't know who he's playing in it, but he's another one of those guys who's uh, traveled between universes because he was Perry White in the Superman right. Batman movies. So. Kind of interesting. We'll see what uh, what role he has. I wonder if he's playing Bill Foster, who was uh, sort of the original replacement giant man. He was uh, Goliath in the comics, uh, and he's killed in uh, Civil, Civil War. War I, yeah. But yeah. So anyway, that could be interesting. Uh, right. Yeah. So moving right on. Jesus, ah, so much to go. Yeah. Uh, next, lightning next round. One, lightning round. I keep wanting to say the cable trailer. Um, yeah. It kind of was, but no, It's this is a, a new trailer for Deadpool 2 featuring Cable. It was a character we've all wanted to see in movies forever, and finally got a good look at him, and looks good. Yeah. Uh, so Cable, Nathan Summers, 
90s. Potential spoiler alert, the future son of Cyclops. No, remember, we got the slogan now, right, spoiler right, alert. Right, right, fair enough. Yeah, Cy- Cyclops' son from the future, um, all around 90s badass. Grr. So growly 90s melodramatic, like what a perfect foil for Deadpool. Who was also, uh, at least uh, originally, a, a, you know, created by the same guys. Uh, well... There's there's some questionable creator credits for Cable, but uh. definitely Fabian Nicieza and uh, Rob Liefeld had a huge hand in his creation. Deadpool a little more uh, definitively Fabian Nicieza and uh, uh, Rob Liefeld together at last. I mean, they had a, a run of comics in the uh, early 2000s, 2004 to 2008, I believe, where they had the, a, a joint title, and they've always been a great odd couple relationship. And it, it'll be cool to see them together. We also get a brief glimpse at some of the other new characters that they've introduced in this. Domino uh, and and other characters who haven't actually been named yet, but Terry Crews is one of them. Mm-hmm. It looks like there's a little team assembly action happening. It's worth noting, they do a fun thing where the start of the trailer, in a way it's almost a generic action movie trailer. Where it's Cable being a badass in a dark time. And, and, but, and then they pull the Deadpool twist. But it looks like they're, it looks like they're not making a parody of Cable... They're making Cable, so that relationship you're describing where the two of them are so far apart, and of course they're going to fight each other and have to find a way to work together. This is one of the comic book relationships... It's the first one in a long time that I'm excited to see in the big screen. Mm. Does that make sense? Sure. Like, we all knew how, like, Cap and Iron Man was going to go. Right. But this I'm jazzed for, and it looks like they're doing it exactly the way they should. The other thing that has been uh, blowing my mind with all the Deadpool promotion is how much new content that has been created just for trailers. Like... The, the trailer uh, in, of Deadpool in the alleyway with the like he's or in the phone booth and he's right, changing yeah. into his outfit that's like that's not going to be in the movie that's all brand new content created just for the trailer yeah the trailer is a short movie is it yeah the the Bob Ross thing and the the teaser trailer where he's painting and everything that's never going to be in the movie that's just for the trailer and there's a whole segment in this of Deadpool playing with action figures that's just for the trailer it's like all this extra content that is fantastic I, I love it and super appropriate for the meta narrative that deadpool is in because yes. deadpool knows he's in a movie right and he, this is the kind of trailer like this is what he would do he knows he's in a movie he knows he's in a trailer he knows he's in a comic book it's it's great it fits it perfectly super excited about that lightning round next trailer um this one's easier the venom trailer up which we, where we saw nothing yeah, it's a teaser. It could have been a trailer for literally anything. It has the exact same tone as the cable stuff from the start <laughs> of the Deadpool trailer, which is then lampooned. This is just, I'm a badass, and things are bad, and people explode, and sometimes things are bad. Yeah. Cut to Venom. What is it with Hollywood and not showing Venom? Well... Okay, what do you mean? Give me. What do you mean? Sp- not Spider-Man Venom? Three. The biggest complaint about Venom is that it was all Eddie Brock, right, and not Venom. Yes. Now they're like, okay, we're gonna do Venom right. Teaser trailer. It's all Eddie Brock and not Venom. Yeah, and no one's going to see the Eddie Brock movie. No, nobody cares about Eddie Brock. Nobody knows who Eddie Brock is. Right. And the, those that do don't really care about him. <laughs> yeah. In my experience, anyway, it's all about Venom. Anytime you see Eddie Brock without Venom, you're like, well. When do we get to Venom? Yeah. We see it looks like one shot of what's probably the symbiote, like in a you know, a Metroid tube. 
Yeah. Um, a little container trying to bust out. Yeah, for a half second, you know, the, the fade in, fade a fade in, fade a fade that we get in trailers nowadays. Yeah. We, do we have any idea who that guy is who has it? No. No. Uh, not, not as far as I know. Yeah, we don't know anything. Yeah. But there's a trailer for Venom, so there now, you go. The things I do like about it are, are Tom Hardy. I always love Tom Hardy. He's fantastic. Oh, yeah, I guess his delivery everything. is fine. I think it's an odd choice of voice. Again, he does an amazing American accent, but his voice seems oddly high-pitched, I found. It's, it, I think it's something about like make, trying to make a New York accent yeah. specifically, and it's not coming across quite right. No. Or is it a San Francisco thing? It's hard to say. And then there's uh, Michelle Williams, who's uh, the love interest in it, or seemingly the love interest in it, and she's a fantastic actress. Like, everything she's in gets Oscar-nominated. She's constantly abuzz with respect, and, and it, she, they both seem, and I don't mean to sound like a jerk, but they both seem like they might be too good for this movie. Certainly from what we've seen so far, because... I mean, it's kind of a B character, and mm. it's out of the spotlight, because it's not part of the big Marvel thing, and just it came out of nowhere when it was announced, and now we have the first teaser trailer, and it's completely uninteresting. Yeah. So what are they doing in it? <laughs> it, it it's like, Is this sort of the equivalent of how like Kevin Smith rounded up real actors into his pet projects? Like... Ah. Well, here's the thing. It's the movie isn't coming out till October, so maybe all the venom effects just aren't done yet and this is the all, all the stuff they had that they could show. Okay, but like Star Wars, you know, a year and a half before Force Awakens come out, they're like red lightsaber, Millennium Falcon, music. Like you hit the key notes right. to establish it as a Star Wars movie. It's a Venom movie, put Venom in the trailer and you go, "Oh, look at Venom." It's a Venom movie. They didn't do that. They yeah. decided... To... You see you see the telltale eyes and sort of black suit outline and the end when they say the title. Yeah, but that's title treatment. It's yeah. not even what it actually is in the movie. Right. Nobody cares about, you know, oh, my life is hard, guy. Nobody. <laughs> we have that movie already a hundred times. Yeah. They're advertising for Venom. I can't believe they didn't show Venom. Very strange decision. So... We gotta move on. There's one more trailer we'll be talking about in a little while. So don't fret, we haven't missed it. Yeah, the trailer roundup continues. But, for the meantime, number four on the list. uh, Brian Michael Bendis, who we we talked about when he left Marvel. It was an earth-shattering Marvel event. Not the kind they usually go for, but... (laughs) (laughs) Technically, he hasn't even left yet. I mean, there's still... His comics are still coming out. We haven't reached the point where we're out of Bendis Marvel (laughs) stuff. But, but, he went to DC... And now we know what they're, you know, where they're spending their Bendis. Yes, and it's it's very intriguing. I know when we last discussed it, I had said I hope that he doesn't do Superman. Well, he's doing a whole lot of Superman. Doing like, yeah, he's going to be the Superman guy. Yeah. So the the most intriguing thing is he's doing a six issue miniseries called Man of Steel, and it's going to be weekly, and it's going to be what leads into his titles. The last time there was a big creator who went from Marvel to DC. Uh, of of huge note was probably John Byrne. He was a co-creator or co the, the guy who made the X Men cool with Chris Claremont. All right. One of the guys who did that. And then he took over as the writer and artist on Fantastic Four. He made Alpha Flight uh, a title worth reading. Then he leaves Marvel, goes to DC, takes on Superman, has a six issue miniseries called Man of Steel, and that was, <laughs> right that relaunched the character coming out of Crisis on Infinite Earths. I don't think it's going to be as drastic a change-up with, with Bendis on board. At least that's what he's promised. He's not going to be starting with a fresh new continuity and erasing everything that's come before. How rare for DC. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it definitely seems like they're trying to redo history. Um, yes. And just and the thing about Superman is it's difficult to 
makes Superman an interesting comic book character. Um, For the same reason that he's a favorite comic book character, but, like, the stuff that Bendis can write, how is that going to fit Superman? Like... Well, I, I'm intrigued. I mean, it's a good question. He, his Bendis' best stuff is more street-level. Maybe it would be interesting to see Superman taken to a more street-level place. But, I mean, street-level crime is a little below... Like, there's no problem that Superman cannot solve by throwing it into the sun. Right. But now, he's going to spend his time, like, on the streets, like, like catching <laughs> purse snatchers and well, stuff. Well, that's like, kind of what the character originally was. You know, he was a hero for the little guy. You know, he was trying to, to help everyday people f- deal with problems from, like, gangsters, corrupt politicians, things like that. And, you know, his power set made all of those problems laughably easy to right, solve. Which is why they escalated it. Right. That, that's, this is why now he fights an alien from Apocalypse. Right. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like, that, that is Superman League. I don't know if Superman can rescue cats from trees anymore. I don't think anyone will accept that anymore. Yeah. It's a fair point, uh, and I'm very curious to see what will happen with it. Uh, some of the details we have with the, the miniseries, uh, it's a rotating stable of artists and some of the biggest names on the planet. There's Ivan Reyes, who made a, a name on some of the Jeff Johns Green Lantern stuff. Uh, Kevin McGuire, who ha- has an amazing sort of comic sensibility as an artist. He did the Justice League International uh, back in the day. Some great stuff, always great faces. Adam Hughes, king of the cover, amazing art, sort of cheesecakey, very cool list of artists. After the miniseries, he's going to be taking over Superman and Action Comics. Superman is going to relaunch with a new number one. Action Comics is going to be continuing its numbering, so it'll be issue number 1001. Huh. Yeah, Action Comics has had a thousand issues. That's a somebody buy them a cake. That's that's impressive, (laughs) at least. So, we'll see how that comes out. The other thing that's interesting is he's uh, bringing his Jinx World comics to it, so his creator-owned stuff like Powers and uh, United States of Crime and Scarlet and all those things, and he's also getting his own little corner of the DC Universe. None of the titles for that have been announced. He's going to be writing at least one of them. Right, and that's what we're excited about. That's yeah. where he really has a chance to shine. Yeah. This is, this is what we were talking about, his own stuff. Yeah, so like the Superman books are where DC will be getting its money's worth, presumably. Mm. Uh, This stuff is where Bendis gets to play with characters he's always wanted to play with. Presumably Plastic Man. He's been, uh, on his uh, Twitter and Tumblr, he's been doing a ton of of Plastic Man stuff. So that's probably going to be one of the characters he's going to work with. Right. He's also going to have other titles that he'll oversee, and there will be other creative teams on it. So maybe he'll have the original idea and then just sort of be guiding other creators as they work on those titles. So it'll be interesting. um, DC already has an imprint like that. It's called Young Animal. Its uh, creative force is uh, Gerard Way from My Chemical Romance and Umbrella Academy, and he's got five titles. So I imagine it'll be something similar to that. Number three on the list. Uh, Nintendo <laughs> Nintendo had sort of a weird relationship. Like, Nintendo, we've talked about before, they usually control their IPs, but they've started to release games for mobile, along with you know, the rest of the world. <sighs> Mixed results. They made a Mario game. It's okay. Didn't make the numbers they wanted. It was a Super, or Super Mario, Mario Run. Super Mario Run. Yeah, it's fun. Um, but, I mean, you wouldn't play it in place of a real Mario game, mm. but I guess if you're on the bus. I mean, the point is, they've released three or four titles... And they're okay. 
I think their 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 biggest hit possibly is Animal Crossing. At least that's the one that I, I've seen the most uh, on social media. Animal Crossing, and they have like a they're making the most money off of the Fire Emblem one, but that's because it's a slot machine. Ah, um, that wonderful loot, those loot boxes. Uh, what they've announced now is that sometime, like, I mean, I think they say between 2018 and 2019. Yeah, the so, fiscal year, 2018, 2019, so. They want to release a Mario Kart mobile game. And this, it's, this is where the light bulb went off over somebody's head, because lots of folks are, who are kind into video games, you know, it's not a big deal, but they play Mario Kart. Right. They played it in college, they play it with their friends, they play it as a drinking game. Whatever. And that's just people our age. Kids today still, like, like we used to play Mario Kart. Like, Mario Kart, everybody knows Mario Kart. Yeah. Mario Kart is the ultimate accessible, just fun with your friends game. Cartoony yeah. racing game. I'm not going to tell you what Mario Kart is. If you listen to this <laughs> podcast, you know it. Mario Kart as a mobile title, I think, is really interesting. Now, let's stress. We have no details. Mm-hmm. It's going to be called Mario Kart Tour. Presumably, it will be a Mario Kart game. That's all we know. But what hit me immediately is Mario Kart is at its best when it's played with other people. Everybody has a smartphone. If you're on the subway and you say, I want to play some Mario Kart, and you can create like a local game, and suddenly six people on the same subway car are all playing Mario Kart together, that to me sounds like one of those idyllic future things. Definitely. See, where I I get... Uh, my question is how do you how do you do a racing game on a mobile system? I'm sure there are examples, and I'm sure they they work fine. But I am having a hard time wrapping my head around the steering and controlling of a racing game on a cell phone. Yeah, I mean, part of it will definitely mm, interesting. A lot of these phones still do technically have support for that kind of motion controllery thing, right? Um, a lot of people aren't using it lately because it's not very popular, but that'll be there. You could hold your phone and sort of tilt it a little like it's a steering wheel. That could work. Yeah. There's also the, you know, the fingers on just the corner of the screen thing. That'll work. So, like, you know, tap on the left side of the screen to turn left. Tap on the right side of the screen to turn right. That'll work. I mean, you're right. The level of sophistication, sophistication, it's Mario Kart, but still, like, you need, you need a gas, you need a brake, you need to use items. You need a jump. And you, well, yeah, the jump. Yeah, you need a jump and drift. Yeah. Uh, for that full Mario Kart experience. going to be hard to translate to mobile controls. Can they simplify it? Yeah. Definitely. Will it still be as fun if it's simplified? Tough call. Now, the other question is, it's they've said it's free to play, or like free to start. Of course. So, where? how are they monetizing it? Oh, Tracks. Yeah, for sure. Tracks. You're going to start characters, maybe characters, and with the newer versions, there's all these different carts and tires and you know parachutes that you right. Yeah, you so. customize your car every time before you go out. So, yeah. so do you think loot boxes for that? Loot boxes, yes. I would be surprised if they do it like the Battlefront loot box. Like, I would be surprised if some parts are better than others. Yeah. But I imagine what they'll do is they'll have, they could have, like, you know, buy the Animal Crossing-themed parts hmm. and build an Animal Crossing-themed car. Or build the Zelda-themed parts and build a Zelda-themed car. I think that's a great idea, but I it doesn't seem to fit the mold of how these, these pay-to-win things are going these days, where you... It's all loot boxes, and you can pay to get a loot box that'll give you better stuff, but they want you to keep going. It doesn't benefit them if you can just buy all of the Zelda stuff on day one and you're set. 
it benefits them that that you want to keep putting that coin in. Right. So maybe it's that middle ground. Yeah. So you know, spend, earn, no, in, earn your in-game coins or spend nine ninety nine for a chance at the slot machine and get a bunch of standard car parts, but a chance at like a four-star Mario-themed part. Or this week, special offer, a 2% chance of getting the five-star like Luigi hat. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's, yeah, that's probably where it's going. Yeah. Dangerous because if you're playing on the car, on the subway car, with like six other people, you kind of want to be the cool guy who has the Master Sword strapped to your car, right? Right. So, well, that that would do it. Yeah. I, I don't like that idea. It's it's predatory, and this is a game that will definitely appeal to children, which has been a big problem and led to those yep. cases in Europe and in Hawaii. Um, it's gambling promoted to children, so we'll see if they go that far. Yeah. But, even, but even if they don't, Mario Kart mobile multiplayer, that could be like a Pokemon Go level, you know, immersion thing. Yeah. Which Niantic totally blew the opportunity they had to make Pokemon Go take over the world. With Nintendo sort of holding really tight onto those reins, I think that could be a big deal. Mm -hmm. Not for a long time, like we said, fiscal year 18 to 19, but keep an eye out for it. Number two on the list. Um, this is not our typical wheelhouse. No. No, it's not. On many levels. <laughs> I feel like we aren't quite qualified to give this the attention it needs, but I also feel like maybe that's a reason why we should discuss it, because it's important to bring up. Mm -hmm. um, so the Fantastic Beasts movie, the most recent Harry Potter movie, the first Harry Potter movie that wasn't a Harry Potter movie. Yeah. But a prequel, as everything is these days, everything's yeah. got to be a prequel. But new material in that universe. Um, the sequel for it is coming out, and it's going to heavily revolve around young Dumbledore. The, the well, quote unquote young, because it's Jude Law, who's not, a, despite being the young Pope, is okay. not exactly a spring chicken. But Dumbledore is the Harry Potter Yoda. Yes. All right. So <laughs> you cut that age in half. That's still pretty young. That's still pretty fair yeah, enough. That's still Jude Law. Um, which is very exciting, because that's a very interesting, very integral character to Harry Potter lore. One of the interesting things, though, is not covered in the original books so much, but came out when they were making the movies. And interesting stuff like choice that. of words. Okay, fair enough. You're right. <laughs> no pun intended. Um, Dumbledore is a gay character. Well, here, but, uh, my understanding, or Rowling's exact words when she revealed this, were she always thought of him as gay. This comes from the special features in the Harry Potter movies. Like, if you go into on all the discs, go to the interviews... Uh, an interview with one of the writers or directors. I want to say it was Chris Columbus, but that doesn't sound right because he only did the first few. Yeah. Might have been one of the guys later. Probably David but Yates. Maybe David Yates. And he was saying that he had wrote like a line of dialogue for Dumbledore where he's remembering a girlfriend from the past. And Rowling told him, like, no, you can't do that because Dumbledore is gay. Hmm. And the guy says, oh, well, that changes how we're doing this character a little. And in the end, it doesn't because Dumbledore is, at this point, Yoda. He might as well have been asexual. Yeah, it didn't matter. But now... So so, so it's going to be a movie about young Dumbledore now, which means his relationships would sort of come up, especially because we know through ancillary material that Dumbledore apparently had a very passionate relationship with Grindelwald, the bad guy in this series. Now, I don't think it's been said explicitly that it was a romantic relationship. It's passionate, and it was important, and I think 
people have read into it that there was a romance there, but I don't think it, anyone has explicitly said that it was a romantic relationship. But what a thing to explore yes. in a movie. Like, And the metaphors you create between this hidden world of magic, mm-hmm. where people are pretending to not be what they are, and all this, like, what a great... Like, holy cow, the opportunities they... Oh, yeah, they decided not to explore that. Yeah. he, The director, David Yates, said that uh, it will not be ex- he will not be explicitly shown as gay. So that means that, uh, you know, you can read into it what you want, but they're not going to make any scenes of it. He's not going to talk about it. It's not going to be addressed. And J.K. Rowling's response to a lot of vitriol that she received about that was that this is movie two of a five-movie series. There's a lot of ground left to be covered, which is a non-answer. Yeah. This is... So So step one, which we all like, we all know, gays are underrepresented in the media. Mm-hmm. Gays are, tend to be persecuted. This would have been a great opportunity to fight that. They've decided not to. Already that's out the window. But also, like that aside, which I don't want to say that that's not worth... Like, that is a valuable point. But that aside, how cool a plot line for a movie is that? Yeah, and I mean, we've seen lots of storylines where the hero and villain, uh, if it's a man and a woman, have some sort of romantic tension between them. And it, we've seen that time and again. But we've never seen it with a male-male relationship, and it would add a new depth to the movie and a depth to the characters. Speaking of depth, important note that these two actors, Johnny Depp and Jude Law, what great actors to pull (laughs) off that, to act that relationship. Mm -hmm. That's perfect on a million levels. We feel like, I mean, sociopolitically, it's a missed opportunity. In terms of making a great movie, it's a missed opportunity. In terms of just, why would you let this go f- except if you were worried about people being outraged about it because of the old closed-mindedness that we're trying to fight? Yeah, it's it's definitely a feeling of trying to have your cake and eat it too, you know? But it, it doesn't count. Yeah, it's a cheap, lazy way out. And yeah. It, it, it benefits no one. Like it benefits neither side of this argument, which shouldn't be an argument anymore. It's the 21st century, for Pete's sake, and the movie suffers for it. All right, so it's the called the Crimes of Grindelwald. Fantastic Beats, Crime, Crimes of Grindelwald, and it's coming out November 16, 2018. I guess we will uh, have to see the movie before we yeah. can fully judge whether there was an opportunity that was missed or not. But the spotlight is so on these issues right now. Yeah. Like, this thing could have been a leader, and the fact that it's not is extremely disappointing. And yeah, okay, there's three more movies in this series. Sure, we'll see, but why not now? Mm-hmm. The answer to that is no good answer, and that tells you something. Number one on the list... Oh, yeah, we missed that other trailer. Right. (laughs) Other two trailers. Other two trailers, yeah. So it was a teaser for the teaser and then the teaser trailer. But the teaser for the teaser trailer had stuff that wasn't in the teaser trailer. Did I I get that right? Sure. (laughs) So there was the Super Bowl ad for Solo, a Star Wars story, Mm. which I don't understand. It's a Super Bowl spot promoting the full teaser that came out the day after because they didn't want to release the trailer during the Super Bowl? I don't understand the logic. Well, I just... uh, The way I have looked at it, and this probably isn't the case, but it feels like the movie got delayed because of reshoots and the directors being fired and the new guy being hired. And so the movie comes out in May. We've got, what, four months to get there? Maybe less before the movie's actually released. And 
they they have to go on an accelerated pace now. Yeah. You know, by now there would have been at least one trailer that came out months ago, but this is the first we've seen of it. So everything's on fast forward. They got to crank these out now. <laughs> so they just did two of one. Okay, yeah, that's yeah. fair. <laughs> So, regardless of the politics beside, what do we see? So we see young Han Solo, and I can't pronounce the guy's name. Who is he? Alden Ehrenreich. Alden Ehrenreich, which, apologies, Alden, I just... Um, and I'll come right out and say it. I don't care that he doesn't look like Harrison Ford. There is something about his delivery that really bothers me. On the other hand, it's just a trailer, and it's a whole new thing, and you shouldn't... Like, this is the same thing you get whenever you recast a character. Like, this is what we got with, with Chris playing... Chris Pine playing Kirk. Kirk, yeah. Yeah. It's it's not supposed to be the same delivery, and I get that. There are, are hints at it, at least with Chris Pine. You know, you get a, a taste of the Shatner there without it being a full-on uh, impression. Yeah. This... With this, Alden Eric and Rick, look, we see him between the two trailers for a total of maybe 20 seconds. Yeah, not nearly enough to judge. Which I think is also telling. I mean, the movie is called Solo, and I feel like you barely see him in the the trailers. Yeah, we see as much of the new characters. They share the screen time, which is an interesting choice. Uh, But we see that. I didn't like it. I think a lot of folks on the internet didn't like it, and they're not going to because they're the internet. But (laughs) we'll see. Um, but we see the world, we see the, the cast of the crew, like of the heist crew, which is yeah. fun. We see Woody Harrelson, who seems to be Han's mentor, who we know is not long for this world, even before we notice that like, he's wearing Han Solo's belt. Mm. Like, there's no, like we, there's no way he's making it through this alive. <laughs> we see a droid, because there's always a droid. This one looks like Alpha 5, which is great. Yeah. We see Amelia Clark as Kira, which... They had to spell it with an apostrophe. She had to be Q-I apostrophe R-A. No, I'm pretty sure it's because she's Klingon. Ugh. She, she's, yeah, definitely a Klingon. That's why they spelled it that way. Like, Star Wars has its, you know, Kashyyyk has three Ys, for God's sake. But when you get to the apostrophes, just leave it alone. She looks like a mysterious woman who seems yeah. to know more about Han's past. Seems to have more Ooh. money than most of the characters in it. Yeah. We see some aliens. We a see singing lady. We, it seems like a kind of heist movie, except that Han Solo is in it, and that a couple of shots that Lando is in it. Yes, and Chewbacca. Let's come yeah, on, give che- Chewbacca his credit. What? What? Chewbacca is the best. Che- che- but Chewbacca is hard not to do right. Right. You know, yeah, like, fair enough. Yeah, there aren't a lot of nuances to his dialogue. You delivery. get a tall guy and Ben Burt, and you're pretty much set. Yeah. Yeah. You're fine. <laughs> um, no lines uh, from Lando, which is interesting. And like, no, like. Donald Glover doesn't look any more like Billy D. Williams than Alden Ehrenreich looks like Harrison Ford, but nobody's mad about Donald Glover. Uh, So maybe it is the speaking, like maybe when he talks it's going to throw us off. I don't know, but they decided not to have him talk in the trailer. Um, I think he's... He's he's probably the bigger name out of the two of them. Well, he's definitely the bigger name between... You can't even pronounce his name. Yeah. But Donald Glover is Childish Gambino. He runs and stars in Atlanta, and he was on Community. And he's got this this cachet to him. And it, it feels like a bit of a missed opportunity not to have him with some dialogue in this. But I feel like as we get closer, he's going to be one of the main selling points. He has to. People love Lando, and people love Donald Glover. This is a big... Scene. Yeah. Anyway... So we see this. There are some Easter eggs. Han's gold dice are on the thing of the land speeder. Very nice. 
Um, there's still that question of why does the Millennium Falcon look different? We'll find out. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see it's got that front mandibles like filled in, right. which is interesting. I mean, personally, I you know it takes place what like 20 years before A New Hope. I yeah. don't really care that it looks different. They're that modifying the Falcon all the time. Yeah. I mean, if anything, I thought it was more dramatic that we see, in both the trailers we see the shot of the inside of the hallway where it looks pristine. Yeah. Where it looks clean. That's nice. That's interesting. Coolest thing to me in the trailers was these like nebula tunnels that the Falcon's being chased by a Star Destroyer and and there's TIE fighters and stuff. And it's a cool-looking thing that we haven't really seen before. But then in the more recent trailer, there's a part where they spin the Falcon and it smashes a TIE fighter and it goes skittering Mm -hmm. off. And I know the TIE fighters have always been sort of disposable villain things, but that seems a little too disposable, that that the Falcon can spin and smash into it and come away completely unscathed. Uh, we don't know if it's unscathed. I guess. It looks pretty unscathed. More interesting... Well, I mean, okay, that was... Per, per no, no, I'm that's sorry. fine. More interesting, is that the Maw? Mm. Because a big part of this movie has to be the Kessel Run. And we know in the expanded universe that the Ma was like this series of black holes or something. Right. So maybe this cool weather thing that they have going on. Is, yeah. It no? could be. It could be. Yeah. But, but right. And he's getting. He's only twelve parsecs away from whatever. <laughs> it is, right. Right. Yes. Yes. But by that token, I mean. I think one of the things people were worried about going into this movie that it would just explain every mystery about Han Solo in one go. So in this one movie, are we going to see him meet Lando for the first time, him meet Chewie for the first time, him getting the Falcon, him going through the Kessel Run, all in in one movie? That looks like what we're getting, and that's exactly what I said when this was announced. I don't want to know any of that stuff. Yeah. But if we, we got to know, if we gotta, I hope it's cool. Yeah. Anyway, we're a little over time. Um, solo Star Wars story. Coming and, up May 25th. Yeah. Originally directed by Phil Lord and Chris Miller, and now finished off by Ron Howard. A lot of troubled background. Um, but hey, worst case scenario, it'll still be another Star Wars movie. It can't be as bad as that I'm Han Solo connect dance routine. <laughs> That's the news uh, for this episode of Geek Top 5. We'll be right back with a special deep dive. So please, stay tuned. Welcome to the second half of this episode of Geek Top 5, and uh, this week we're doing one of our patented, ultra-exciting deep dives. Something that we felt we really wanted to talk about, something that was really bugging both of us. Usually something I'm mad at Graham about, but at this point I think we're, we kind of agree. Well, let's find out. Uh, <laughs> we are talking about, uh, we're, let's start with death in fiction. I think what what sparked this idea was the recent news about Jean Grey's resurrection in the comic Again. books. Yeah. Yeah. Now, to be fair, Jean Grey hasn't actually died that much. I would really only count uh, two deaths for her. But if I understand correctly, you're going to count that because you're not counting, like, clones or alternate universes. Well, alternate universes ha- don't count. Or what? Well, but to the average to the average Joe, like me, yeah, yeah, that they, they do, because I don't know the material well enough to know that, oh, that wasn't Jean Grey, that was her twin sister from an alternate reality. Okay. Like, all I know is that this character was alive, and then she was evil, and then she was dead. All right, let's let's get into the nitty-gritty of it. The the so Jean Grey uh, was a founding member of the X Men. She's Marvel girl. She's on the team, and in the seventies, I believe, or early eighties, there was a huge storyline where she got this special interstellar space powers of the 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 Phoenix. She got possessed by the Phoenix Force, and 
you know, she helped the team for a while and used her powers for good. And then the Phoenix Force, as part of her, learned wanted to learn more about the darker side of human nature and became evil. And eventually she sacrificed herself before bad stuff happened to the X-Men. And then she was dead for a long time. And eventually they resurrected her by saying it wasn't actually Jean Grey. That was the Phoenix Force in like a clone of her body or like a... a symbol of her body and the real Jean Grey was in a cocoon at the bottom of the Hudson River comic books uh that turned out to be a clone right no that was the real Jean Grey in the meantime there was Cyclops remarried a woman named Madeline Pryor who that ended up being a clone of Jean Grey but she was never identified as Jean she was always Madeline Pryor she was a separate character who happened to have red hair who just happened to be a clone of the original who who was identical on a genetic level to the original character but just had a different name but it wasn't that I, I don't even think that was part of the original plan for the character. She just happened to be a redhead who looked kind of like Jean, who Cyclops married. And then... The clone of his dead wife. It became the clone of his dead wife. Right. But, but then the clone died. Yes. But I still consider her a separate character. Yeah. I wouldn't count her as Jean Grey. From my perspective, that's just Jean Grey dying over and over and over. We can agree to disagree on that. Then the second time she died it was in the early 2000s. There was a long stretch where she was totally alive and fine. And then she died in the movie. Yes. And like, I just... Well, because her death was such an impactful storyline, and it was impactful, and we'll get into this more, because at the time, superhero deaths were extremely rare. Yeah, and that's something that's important to remember, I think. Like, until the early, mid-90s, superheroes were superheroes. They never died. Yeah. And then, who died first? Was it Jean Grey or Superman? Jean Grey. Jean Grey died first. Okay. And then, like, Superman made it cool? Yes. I mean, let, let's backtrack a little bit. All right. Uh, Superman probably died first, but it was one of those deaths where it was like an imaginary story, or it was... Uh, no, I mean like the death of the Superman. Death, that that's arc. Superman. That's yeah. 92, I believe I so, yeah. yeah. And it was it was a big... Literally, the, the storyline came about because the the people who were writing the four Superman titles at the time wanted to do the wedding of, uh, of right. Lois Lane. They wanted to do Lois Lane, but they couldn't because it was on the TV show. And they wanted to sync it up with the TV show. And the TV people said, give us a year. And so all their plans for that year, which were to ramp up to this wedding, had to be postponed. And they, someone was like, well, we got to think of something to do for this year. And they said offhandedly, let's kill him. Let's kill Superman. And then it slowly built traction in the room until that became the storyline. And it sold so well that DC started this trend of these horrible things happening to their very <laughs> right. superheroes. I remember it was on the news. Yeah. Superman is dead. Like, on the evening news. Yeah, regular people lined up at comic book stores to get the issues. My parents got me, when it came out in trade in in a collected edition, my parents got it for me. It was an early comic book purchase for me. I read that book over and over again. I think you had the novelization. Yeah, yeah. I've had it a couple of times over the years as I keep losing them. We're burying the lead. (laughs) Getting off track. What we're here to talk about today is, does that matter anymore? Yeah. Does anybody care? When a character dies. I just, I feel like at this point, it's become so by the numbers, so it's become a mandatory part of the storytelling. I mean... Perfect example, the DC Snyderverse movies. Right. At the end of Batman versus Superman, already being advertised as the movie that's going to lead into the Justice League movie, Superman, air quotes, dies, stop air quoting... 
I think by the end of the, that movie, they're implying he's going to come it's back. It's uh, pretty heavily teased that Did, he's going to be back. Was there a single person on the face of the planet who thought that Superman wouldn't come back in the next movie? And if everybody knew he was coming back, was there any point to killing him in the first place? Yeah. it. I mean, I guess, I, I, full disclosure, I haven't seen Justice League yet. But it seems like You're his, fine. <laughs> it seems like his death was used... To motivate Batman to form the Justice League and to become, you know, a nicer person again. And that's fine. It's but generous. I guess. But it feels like that could have been accomplished a million ways. It could have been accomplished with Superman being part of the people assembling the Justice League. Or being a holdout for assembling the Justice League. Something like that. But his death had, like, even if you thought he's dead for good... Did it have any impact on you? He was in uh, a movie and a half by the time he dies. Do you care? And, and it doesn't hurt that he was killed in a pretty stupid way, too. I think what we're going to come down to, and the, you know, the two sides of the coin we're going to be talking about is, but I think a character's death can still be done effectively. It's the resurrection that mm. kills it. That we've resurrected so many characters that that's the problem. I will definitely agree with you on that point, but I will go a step further and say that most deaths of characters on on TV and movies on uh, in in comic books feel hollow and meaningless because it feels like a calculated move. You know, whenever there's a comic book big event now, the tease is someone's gonna die, and it's like I don't really care at this point. You know. Someone always dies in one of these. They always end up coming back. So, again, you're right. Yeah, the, resurrection the resurrection helped it. But I- So, I mean, contrast that with a Ned Stark. Right. And I think that's an example. Like, oh, To be fair, that world is starting to play a little fast and loose with resurrections on its own. But at the time, the kind of people who would never watch a swords and sorcery thing, I hear from them that like what got them was when the protagonist was killed. Yeah. And I mean, stayed like- dead. And, like, he didn't come back at the end of the episode or at the start of the next season. He just died, and the world had to move on. People really bought into that. So that's, I think, the example. It's the resurrection. That's a problem. And we've already, spoiler alert, is a show <laughs> slogan, when they kill Jon Snow and then immediately bring him back, like, the next episode. Right. It takes so much of that gravitas out. Okay, I will counter that with The Walking Dead. Where death of character, like, okay, so I guess it does have resurrection but, yeah, as yeah. well, <laughs> but no, in a limited we, capacity. We can make that distinction right now. This is an old D&D distinction. Resurrection is revolt to full life. Zombie doesn't count. Right. Skeleton doesn't count. Lich doesn't even really count. <laughs> resurrection means you are who you were before you died again. Yes. So that's so there. We've established the, the vocabulary we're going to use for this deep dive. Um yeah, on The Walking Dead, people die all the time. Yeah, and at a certain point, you know, it's you stop getting attached to new characters, or or a character has to earn your trust. You know, in a, a, the Sasha who ended up joining Star Trek Discovery, she had been around for a while, and when she died, she still wasn't exactly a beloved character. At least I didn't feel that she didn't have the same cachet as some of the characters that had been around longer. So her death. While it was 
a powerful scene, I didn't really care. It just she's, it was like a revolving door. It's like, well, she's done. On to the next one. But is that is that the context of the show? Like some show, I mean, I feel like Walking Dead can get away with it better than most. But some shows use deaths. Like, as a lazy writing thing. Yeah. Like, I'm thinking, like, Supernatural at this point. They kill people all the time on that show. Protagonists and B characters, regardless. The protagonists always come back. Yeah. It's a revolving door afterlife. But there's constantly, in the, uh, the act structure of this show, the end of an act, like, before a commercial break, is almost always, like, somebody getting horribly killed. And after a couple of episodes, you just don't care. Well, see, here's the thing. Like, I... I was a pretty big Supernatural fan. I've fallen off the bandwagon a bit in recent years. but And part of that is because they kept killing off side characters that you grew to really like. And, and you know, there was uh, their father. He was one of the first big side character deaths. And then surrogate father Bobby died. Their, their pal Kevin died. Joe and her mom died. And it reached a point where, you know, when Kevin Tran joined the show... It, I basically started a stopwatch. It was like, how long <laughs> until last. he dies? And it takes it takes any of your interest in getting attached to that character away. Because you just know he's dead. He's going to die. And as they take away these characters, these side characters that you like, it gives you less reason to watch the show. Yeah, but I think... Yeah, we agree on that. That's it done poorly. But I still think... I mean, again, resurrection is a problem. So Nick's the resurrection... I still think a death can be done pretty well. One of the things on our list to talk about is the Joss Whedon deaths. Right. I think the vast majority of those deaths are very effective. Okay, uh, so let's let's go through some of them here. There's Tara, Willow's girlfriend on right. Buffy. That's a big one, and it was... Gr- uh, I, I was going to say a great death. Um, yeah, I don't it, mean it that way, no, but it's, a it's, powerful Yeah, death. it was a powerful moment. It was a heartbreaking scene. It was losing a character we'd come to love, and it had a profound impact on the other characters on the show for the next, like, eight hours worth of footage. Right. And it was... It was it, he's good at doing it in a measured way. It's not... There isn't, like... A main character death per season. Like I can think of two permanent deaths on that on Buffy off the top of my head of characters who were part of mm-hmm. the Scooby Gang. So Tara and uh, Buffy's mom, and Buffy's mom's death was in no way supernatural, and they they kept her, her death sacred. You know, there was very little toying with resurrections with her because it was just a normal death. It had nothing to do with vampires and nothing to do with demons. Yeah, she dies. And it affects the characters and the consequences of that cascade through the writing. That, I think, is an example of death done really well. And I think that can still be done today. The distinction is if they brought her back at any point, all of that character development would have been wasted. Yeah, it becomes a bit null. And and that arguably... You could see that as being a, a problem for characters like Batman and Captain America. You know, two of their biggest regrets or, or motivating things had to do with the deaths of sidekicks. And now both of those sidekicks have been resurrected. And does that take away some of the urgency related to it? You know, with Batman, it was always whenever they needed to show some sort of motivation for him that wasn't related to him being orphaned, it was that. Robin was killed, and it was his... He felt responsible for it, and he wasn't going to let that happen again. Well, now Robin isn't dead. That guy's back. He's not the same. He's kind of crazy, and he's kind of a jerk, but he's not dead anymore, so... 
does that motivation disappear? Kind of. Because it's like, well, in the end, that worked out well after all. I mean, this is, you know, Spider-Man with great power becomes great responsibility because he wasn't responsible and got his uncle killed. Right. If his uncle came back, oh, well, it's okay. I can be irresponsible sometimes. It's all going to work out in the end. Now, arguably, uh, a further extension of that is Gwen Stacy. And she has been resurrected in one form or another many times over the years. She doesn't last. Usually she's dead again by the end of the storyline. But, but, I mean, that's worse in a way. Yeah. Like, like that's where it becomes tiring because as soon as she comes back, it's like, oh, great. I guess we have another six-issue you know, special before yeah. Gwen Stacy dies again and we have to pretend that Spider-Man is sad again. Like, at what point does Spider-Man just go like, oh, great, you're back. Okay. Yeah. And at what point is it – does the, the flashbacks to her, you know, dangling off the, the, the bridge – become irrelevant because that wasn't the last time he saw her. He's seen her like 50 times since then yeah. in one form or another. And in half of them she died. So yeah. like which memory is the traumatic memory? Yeah, see, that's what I'm focusing on. Resurrection is the problem. And it's a big problem because now we don't take it seriously. And that's what happened mm. in Batman versus Superman. Everyone just rolled their eyes at Superman's death. And so much of that movie, especially in the, the, the what is it, the ultimate... Right, you know, the, Mega XLR edition. It's so much of like the funeral and the coffins and the oh poor Lois. And we're all sitting there like, why are we wasting our time with this? Yeah, it's we know it's hollow. We they already established earlier in the movie pretty clearly how they're going to bring him back, and then mm-hmm. by the end of the movie, you see the rumbling dirt, and it's like. Which just, doesn't turn out to have anything to do with how they resurrect him, by the way. Uh, so that's even oh, worse. So the only reason that's in the end of Batman versus Superman is as a direct, like, okay, yes, we're bringing him back. We admit it. <laughs> Not even tied to the resurrection in any way. Ay, ay, ay. Yeah. So the question of the deep dive is, are deaths, especially of protagonists, but in general, still effective? I think the answer is yes, if you treat it with respect, and that respect, part of that respect is not bringing them back. And I get that's not profitable for a comic book character, but if, you know, if that's the card you want to play, that's, what you, like, that's how you have to play it. Well, I think what they're doing now in comic books in particular is they uh, – uh, what springs to mind is Marvel in particular has stepped away from big deaths uh, – in the Civil War II crossover, Tony Stark didn't die. He was in some sort of coma. Uh, She-Hulk didn't die, but she was injured and changed by it and is extra hulky and weird-looking now. So there are consequences, but they don't rely on death. And certainly it's only a matter of time before the status quo returns, but you don't have to invalidate a death to do it. But isn't that status quo returns essentially the resurrection? Isn't that essentially the same thing? Yes, Tony Stark, like, he's in a coma, but he's also an AI now is the current state. Yeah, right? for Riri. Yeah, like he updated. But I think he's, he's anyway, he's, his body's missing. He's, it's only a matter of time yeah, before, before he comes back. And at which point it's like, well, what was, like, why did we spend all the time emotionally invested in his being gone? Right. Like, it, it doesn't matter how well it's presented or written or acted in the case of a movie or show if we know that there's no consequences at the end of it. Yeah, 
I mean, Wolverine died recently. That was something we talked about. He was covered in the in but, molten. But we were joking about it because it was like almost like a year or two years before he came back. And wow, that's pretty impressive for a comic yeah. book character. And the thing that frustrates me with a resurrection like that is they set it up so that there are plenty of Wolverine analogs available. There's Old Man Logan. There's X twenty three. There's X twenty three's clone Gabby, uh, who I Wait, think is a clone of a clone. Yeah, can you even do that? Uh, look, we're getting into multiplicity territory. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, there's a clone of a clone. There's his ultimate universe son who's in this timeline now. Oh, yeah. So there's all of these guys who have basically the same powers of Wolverine, basically the same costumes, basically the same personalities. No reason to bring him back. No reason to bring him back. And yet they felt the need to. And I think part of it is because there's a recent backlash against all these new iterations of your favorite Marvel characters, and they're trying to correct for changing too many of them at once. But I don't know. I just think it, it's it's too soon, and it's it. There's there was no impact. You know, oh, regular Wolverine's back. I, I don't remember a lot of cheers or a lot of happiness or a lot of excited articles about it. So let's circle back to the inciting incident of this deep dive. Then Phoenix is back. Jean Grey is back. And to be fair, from the description that's in there, and if you guys have been following, we posted a bit about this on the, the Geek Top 5 Facebook, mm-hmm. uh, facebook.com slash geektop5. <laughs> uh, and it sounds like they're doing something interesting, like it's a different way of resurrection, but in the end, Phoenix is back. Does anybody care? And again, it's because like, <clears throat> there are so many replacements for her already in the universe. There's young Jean Grey, there's a million other telepaths, there's Hope uh, Summers, who seems to have disappeared again, but was a young, red-headed mutant. I mean, there's all these characters that had replaced her, and it was... I feel like she had more impact as a memory, as an as a inspiring character, like a Bucky or a Jason Todd. And bringing her back, I mean, we'll see. If it's well-written, that's great, but... If it only gives you one decent storyline, is it worth it? Yeah, and like, like, let's assume, even if they decide, okay, we're going to treat this character with more respect now, she's not going to die off immediately, we're going to do interesting new things, is anyone invested in that character anymore? I say no. Like, to me, at this point, it's kind of like a Schrodinger's Phoenix. Right. Like, she constantly exists in a state of either alive or dead. And I don't care which, because well, I'm not lifting the box. Right. I mean, one of the things they've done in this to try and get away from that feeling is to intentionally, very deliberately separate Phoenix from Jean Grey. So they're no longer one thing. Mm-hmm. And I have no doubt that that is going to be the status quo as long as this person is writing it, as long as this editorial staff is in place. But it is only a matter of time before there's a regime change and someone says, oh, we got to bring Phoenix back. That was the best part of Jean Grey. It was the only thing that made her interesting. And, and they'll bring it back and she'll die again and be resurrected again. So even with these promises and even with every valiant attempt to separate that from the character, that's all she is to a lot of people. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, in her case, it's almost appropriate because of the whole Phoenix thing. Yeah, it dies and comes back. But it's a joke. Yeah. It's a joke. The character is a joke. Nothing the character does can be taken seriously. I think the smartest thing to do would be to cut that character off and stop writing her. Because you're done. You've ruined it. Yeah. You've absolutely ruined it. Now, I, let's circle back to, to the Joss Whedon of it all. Because 
we talked about the the deaths and how he is particularly good at it, and there there are plenty of great examples. I think where the Joss Whedon killing people trope jumped the shark was with the Avengers movies. And it's not necessarily his fault in those, because that's all done by committee. There's a lot of yeah. chefs in that kitchen. Um, but Phil Coulson dies in that, and it felt very Whedon-y. And it felt like a cheat, you know? We, we'd we only gotten tastes of him up until that movie, and then he's dead, and then is immediately resurrected for the TV show. And again, now you're talking about the resurrection being the part that hollows that out. But I think his death in that movie... As a standalone thing, even if you don't know anything about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., it feels so by the numbers. Like, we need someone to die to mm. motivate these characters. Yeah, it's almost like, like like writing a death is like a get-out-of-jail-free card for yeah. a particularly tricky writing problem. Like, he needed, at that point, like, he's you know he's driven the Avengers apart and everything's bad, and he needed an inciting incident to get the Avengers back together for the climax. Mm-hmm. And maybe this doubles back on Supernatural, too, but, like, having someone die, in theory, is a very, like, it's a life event, it's a life-changing thing. That Now, like, here's a good excuse for me to change how my characters are thinking. Yeah. In that sense, the death is, it, it feels like a cheat. It's cheap. It feels lazy. It's It's good for the character's motivation, but it doesn't do anything for the audience. And I think, at least speaking for myself, I often feel cheated by it because it just feels... So manipulative, mm-hmm. you know, Quicksilver's death in Avengers 2, where it just felt like, well, someone has to die in this, so he's got to be the one, even if it doesn't necessarily make sense for the character. Even since he's only been in the one movie, you don't necessarily feel that big a loss by having him die. Someone's got to die, and it just feels hollow. Uh, it brings me to the Star Wars movies. You know, the original trilogy, what major deaths are there? Obi Wan Kenobi in the first movie. But he comes back as a like a ghost. Comes, as a ghost. And not even like as a ghost ghost, but a full on like, hey, let's sit down and have a good chat. I'm okay. Yeah. Anybody hungry? I've got barbecue. Like And yeah. then what, Yoda in in Return of the Jedi. Those are the only sort of good guy deaths that I can think of of any consequence in the the original trilogy. In this series, so far, the new one, Han dies in Force Awakens. And it was a powerful scene, and it was that's, motivating. That's still a powerful scene. The second and third time I watched that scene, I had to, like, hold my wife's hand. Right. Like, <laughs> that is a powerful death. It certainly is. But I feel like Luke's death in Last Jedi makes it feel just like a checklist. Like, someone has to die. You to get rid movies. of all the classic yeah, trilogy yeah. characters. Yeah, we've got three classic trilogy characters that we can use here. Let's kill off one per movie to help motivate these characters. And I... I I think if they had just left it at Han, that death would have felt more poignant. Mm. But now I just am like, who's going to die in in the third one? Is it going to be Leia? they got to get rid of Leia somehow. But I don't know. I might fight you on this one just in the sense that, I mean, Han's death is a shocking moment. Mm -hmm. And it had to happen. Luke's death, I feel like, is a really good bow tie to the story of Luke Skywalker. Um, and admittedly, part of that is the caveat of that, of course, he's going to come back as a forest ghost. Right. We know that. We've established that from episode four. If you strike me down, I shall become more powerful. But I think the story of Luke Skywalker from Tatooine farm boy to Jedi master exile, I, I, I mean, I don't think of it as a death so much as an end. Maybe I mean, maybe we have to distinguish between a death and a murder. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
but like Luke's death wasn't a sudden cutting off of his character. That was a resolution of who he was. Mm-hmm. Um, the deaths we're talking about are where you know, where suddenly there is a hard left in your story because that you just take that element right out of it. Wash's death yeah. was a hard left turn. There was no lead up. There was no like noble sacrifice. There's no heroism. Death is not a plot point. Not really. Like when it becomes a plot point, it becomes silly, and I think that's why you lean on the resurrection. Right. Because if you're using the death as a plot point, it's not about the death; it's about a quick scare, and then you come back out of it. In the real world, like people, when you lose someone like that, you know it. Everything changes forever, and that kind of change is really effective from a writing perspective if you're not using it as a gimmick. Because that's a real thing. So, again, we've gotten a bit into the weeds because I'm obviously I'm very passionate about this yes. in particular. But yeah, I don't want to say that death isn't effective anymore. I think we're saying that death as a gimmick is a disservice. And as an audience, we've learned to recognize that. Like death is a gimmick and just yeah. roll our eyes. But a real death, when you actually deal with it, that can still be really powerful and really effective. And so I don't want to write it off. Um, but don't make it silly. And when you make it silly, that's why we keep bringing them back. I'm sorry, I'm circling. but We we have to wrap up, but I wanted to bring up one other thing, which is the rebooting of universes. This is something DC does uh, fairly frequently these days. Uh, it started with Crisis on Infinite Earths in the 80s, and then they did Zero Hour, and then they did... Uh, New 52, I'm sure I missed one or two in there as well. Now there's Rebirth. DC, it's a lot. Yeah. So in uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths, there are two big character deaths. There was Barry Allen, The Flash, and there was Supergirl. Barry Allen stayed dead for a while. Uh, Supergirl, there was just a new version of her. The whole reality rebooted. A lot of characters who, who may have died in the past were able to be resurrected because it was like a clean slate. We're starting new. This isn't the character who died. This is a new character. That That... I also feel can invalidate the deaths, or it's a cheat. Yeah, my my interpret that's still a resurrection, as far as I'm concerned. Like it's different sauce, but same meal. I mean, it's still this character died, and then you brought them back. Whether it's a clone or an alternate universe or a reboot or whatever, like it's that you you tried to make a dramatic impact and then you just reversed it. So what's something like? Uh, I was going to talk Ninja Turtles, but let's let's go into your wheelhouse a bit. Transformers. Okay. Optimus Prime dies in the original cartoon movie. Yes. Uh, but since then, they have had fresh starts of Transformers. Oh, he comes back a few seasons later. Right. He movie. gets resurrected in that. But yeah. even beyond that, there are, I'm sure there are other Transformers who die, and then they just start the continuity fresh again. Optimus Prime is back. He's never died before. Mm-hmm. All these other characters who died are back. Is that How do you feel about that? I mean, with Transformers, I'm much less invested in the story. Okay. And this is coming from somebody who has some very expensive Transformers. (laughs) Transformers, of all these franchises, is probably the most guilty of having a non-unified story. Mm. They're rebooting things and changing things all the time, just because it's so heavily invested in selling toys. Um, The death of Optimus Prime traumatized me because I was a kid when Mm. I saw it. As like as an adult, I still remember those feelings, and it's bad. But again, you know he's going to be okay, right? You know all of these characters are going to be okay. It's like I mean, if you want to try and unify into a big thing, you have to interpret it as that they're stuck in this cycle. 
<laughs> of just killing each other and coming back and killing each other and coming uh, back. And they're robots, the, honestly. The like, Norse uh, cycle of Ragnarok and yeah, everything. <laughs> that, that's putting far too... That's far too generous. But yeah, that's what it is. Um, no, I mean, and in the end, like, they're toys. Those characters are toys. And, like, like, like the, the, the excuse of they're robots to rebuild them, but they're toys. Right. When they're people. And I don't just mean human beings. I mean, like, you know, I, 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 a character can be not a person because they're not a very well-fleshed-out character. A very well-fleshed-out character becomes a person. They become Wash. Yeah. You know? They become... I mean, the one that really sticks with me from the Whedonverse in particular, and, and I mean, fiction in general, is Fred from Angel. It's Fred. Fred is a person. Oh, my God. And, when, and Fred's death is the end of a person. And that person's not around anymore, and you don't get to see them anymore. And, and it's such a sad death like, with... with ugh. And it has those ramifications, and that is still effective. Because that is a real death happening to a person. As opposed to Optimus Prime, who I love like a father, <laughs> but he's not a real person. He's a toy and a symbol. All these people on Supernatural are not people. They're very brief archetypes. Mm-hmm. You know, who exist to say a few witty lines and then get their throat slashed or whatever. But when people die, that's still that's still one of the biggest things in life that we, we deal with. And it can still be done very effectively. But because it's so important, it's damn insulting when it's not done well, when right. it's done as a gimmick. So you know what? Superman is Superman. Don't kill him. He's fine. <laughs> you killed him once. He was gone for a little while. It was a good story. You're done with that. He's just leave him be. Phoenix, just go away. Just go away. We're done. Just, ah, Phoenix. That that is my final say on that. All right, I'm happy to end it there. Okay. So, man, I'm super down now. That's <laughs> sorry about that, folks. I hope we didn't ruin your day. Um, you have been listening to Geek Top Five. Uh, special thanks to our crew who helped us get this to you, to Stella Simeonova, our webmaster, and to Jamie Reum, our musician-in-chief. Uh, that's R-E-A-U-M-E. Be sure to check him out on YouTube, uh, Jamie Reum Official, and check out his podcast, Originals and Covers and Beyond. This one was a... that got a little heavy, uh, but the news was super exciting, all those cool trailers and stuff. Uh, if we've missed anything in there, missed any Easter eggs and Solo and stuff, you know, that's exactly the kind of thing we want to know. So if you found stuff we didn't, please reach out to us. You can email us at geektop5 at gmail.com. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash geektop5. We're on Twitter at geektop5. And you can always leave us a review on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. This has been Geek Top 5. We'll talk to you again in just a couple of weeks. <laughs>